great to see all of you, Purpose Church. So good to be together. And I just want to thank you so much for your flexibility uh, during this time of renovation. We're going to be under the tents again next Sunday. The forecast, I think it's going to be about 10 degrees cooler uh, than it is today. And then on September 12th, we're going to have our 8.30 and 11.30 services in the gym and then 10 o'clock under the, uh, the tents. And so that Sunday, September 12th, I'm going to start our fall series called In the Wilderness. We're going to look at Israel in the wilderness on their way to the promised land, and we're going to apply it to our wilderness in this life on our way to our permanent home in heaven. Uh, The first message is going to be called tabernacling or tenting in the wilderness. Moses commanded the Israelites to begin to celebrate what was called the Feast of Tabernacles or of Tents in order to remember that life is temporary and we're just passing through the wilderness onto heaven, onto our permanent home uh, where we will be with Jesus forever. And so really looking forward to that series. You know, if you missed last Sunday, I would really like you to hear uh, our vision for the for the fall. I uh, really encourage you to do that. Go to PurposeChurch.com, uh, our, our website, and then go to the fall page. And there, there'll be a video for me about seven and a half minutes or so, just kind of casting the vision as to where God is leading us in the fall. And if you didn't get a chance to check that, catch that uh, last Sunday, really encourage you to do so, so that we're all on the same page, uh, marching together in unity as a church uh, into the fall uh, that's coming up here. But today, we're going to continue our summer series. It's got two more weeks of it, this Sunday and next Sunday, called Flipped. When Jesus steps into our life, when he steps into our culture, he flips everything upside down. And we've been doing, through the whole summer, a verse-by-verse study of the Sermon on the Mount, greatest sermon ever preached. And today, we come to Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 14, how to make the biggest decision of your life. Now, Jesus is going to teach us eight steps for making the most important choice uh, for eternity that you'll, that you'll ever make. Number one is to reach out to God. Matthew 7, verse 7. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Let's go back to verse 7. And you'll see each of these uh, verbs in the original Greek that this was written in, ask, seek, and knock. Each one of those in the Greek are in the present imperative tense. So what this literally means is not just ask, but keep on asking. Not just seek, but keep on seeking. Not just knock, but keep on knocking. Keep pursuing God. Oh God, show me the path that I should walk on. Show me the road that I should be on. What's your will uh, for my life? Jeremiah 29, verse 13. God says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. Now, the second step is to relate to your father. And this is based on verse 9 and 10. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? Um, you know, the bread and fish were the two most common foods uh, around uh, the Sea of Galilee and that, in that part of the world. And it was possible uh, that you would find a round limestone that might look like a loaf of bread. They had the same shape and the same color. So you could mistake 
one of those um, uh, round limestones around the Sea of Galilee uh, for bread. Uh, there also was another thing that you could mistake uh, for a snake, uh, uh, the eel-like catfish on the sea of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, they had these uh, catfish that kind of looked like eels, so they were almost like a snake, and they might look like a snake. Now, of course, no earthly father or mother would be so cruel to their children that they would give them stones instead of bread or snakes instead of fish. Um, it, it would be a terrible thing if uh, God uh, gave us what we ask for, we'd be afraid to pray. And so Jesus is saying here that, that even we as humans, we give good gifts to our children. How much more is our heavenly fathers, earthly fathers and mothers, we're going to give good gifts to our kids. Uh, how much more will our heavenly father give us what we need? Not always what we ask for, but, but what we need. And it would be really scary if I got everything that I ask rather than having that uh, pass through the hands of God to interpret what I really need rather than what I think I need. It's like that great theologian, uh, Garth Brooks. Uh, he once uh, sang a song called Thank God for Unanswered Prayers. Uh, the lyrics go like this. Just the other night at a hometown football game, my wife and I ran into my old high school flame. And as I introduced them, the past came back to me and I couldn't help but think of the way things used to be. She was the one that I wanted for all times. And each night I'd spend praying that God would make her mine. And if he'd only grant me this wish, I wish back then, I'd never ask for anything ever again. Sometimes I thank God for unanswered prayers. Remember when you're talking to the man upstairs that just because he doesn't answer doesn't mean he don't care. Some of God's greatest gifts are unanswered prayers. And I'm sure you can think back like Garth Brooks did over your life and over my life and, and things that we ask God for. And I'm kind of glad he never gave that thing to me. You know, the gods of Greek mythology were so much different uh, than the God of the Bible. Uh, the Greeks had their stories about the gods who answered people's prayers, but there was always a, a trick to it. There was always a catch to it. It was almost like God was trying to catch us in our prayers to eventually do harm to us. That's the way the Greek gods were, rather than our God who translates that prayer into what is really good for us rather than what we think we need. Uh, for an example, Aurora, the goddess of the dawn, uh, fell in, in, in love with Tithonus, who was a mortal youth. So she was a goddess, uh, he was a mortal. And so Zeus, the king of the gods, offered her any gift that she might choose for her mortal lover. And so Aurora naturally chose that Tithonus might live forever. But she forgot to ask that Tithonus might remain forever young. And so in Greek mythology, Tithonus grew older and older and older and could never die. So the gift became a curse. Well, thank God that he, our God, is not like Zeus, who tries to trick us when we ask for bad prayers and give it to us and, and add a curse to the blessing. Our God um, is, is so much kinder and is so much a, a good, good father to us. Charles Spurgeon once said, our prayers go to heaven 
in a revised version. Aren't you glad that when Glenn does a stupid prayer, uh, God is up in heaven, he says, oh, there's Glenn. He's one of my stupid kids. And uh, I tell you what, I'm not going to give him what he asks for, what he thinks he needs. I'm going to give him what he really needs. And then number three, rely on God's goodness. Uh, Jesus continues in verse 11. If you then, though you are evil, now by this, evil just means anything, any of us compared to God are evil. So that's what he's saying there. It's a comparative thing. If you then, though compared to God, are evil, um, uh, know how to give good gifts to your children. Even though we are not perfect, we still have a pretty good idea of what our children need. They need bread. They don't need stones. They need fish. They don't need, they don't need snakes. If you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts, the right gift, the perfect gift, the thing that we really need uh, to those who ask him? Um, Jesus uh, were, used the word Abba, Abba. Um, when he was praying to his father in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Paul uses it in his, his letters and encourages us to do the same. Uh, Abba was a very intimate term. It was kind of like our, our word daddy uh, today, not a, like an official standoffish, hello, father, but instead with your arms open wide and his arms open wide saying daddy. That's the word that Jesus used to describe the kind of relationship we're to have with our Heavenly Father. And you know, it's interesting as you look back on the huge amount of ancient Jewish prayer literature, there was just volumes of it uh, from the past. Um, this term Abba is never used uh, until Jesus in all the vast uh, Jewish prayer literature. Abba is never used. It was considered too intimate. Uh, no Jewish person would ever use it. It would be considered very inappropriate to use that with God. But Jesus used it, and he called on us who are followers of Christ, followers of Jesus, uh, to use it as well. Abba, Daddy, uh, here's what I, I think I need, but you know best. Father knows best. Uh, Abba, Father, give me what I really need, what, not what I think I need. And then number four, rise to the challenge. And in this next verse we're going to come to, this is the summit of the Sermon on the Mount. This is, this is the peak. It's almost like we go up the peak of the Sermon on the Mount. This is the peak that we're going to look at right now. And then we go past the peak with some other things that Jesus is going to teach us um, the remainder of today and um, ne next Sunday uh, as well. Here comes the summit of the Sermon on the Mount. This is the most famous thing that Jesus ever said. This verse has been called... Uh, the peak of all social ethics. Um, the Roman emperor, Alexander Severus, uh, Severus uh, during his reign from 222 A.D. to 235 A.D., he had this verse that we're about to look at written in gold on public buildings in Rome and throughout the Roman Empire. And so it became named, because he wrote it in gold on the public buildings, it became known as the golden rule. Matthew 7, verse 12. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Now, 
up until the time of Jesus, it had been stated, but it had been stated in the negative form. Jesus is the first one to do it in the positive form. Do to others what you want them to do to you. It was, it was all around the world in the negative form. Uh, Confucius said, what you do not want done to yourself, do not do to others. Uh, the Stoics said, what you do not wish to be done to you, do not do to anyone else. And one of the Stoics, by the name of Epictetus, said, when what you avoid suffering yourself, seek not to inflict on others. Uh, the Old Testament Apocrypha said, and what you hate, do not do to anyone. Uh, Rabbi Hillel was challenged by um, a non-believer, an atheist, who said that he would convert to the Jewish faith if Hillel could teach the entire Old Testament law while standing on one leg. If you could do the whole law, uh, the whole Old Testament law, standing on one leg, he said, I will convert uh, to Judaism, to the Jewish faith. And here's what Hillel stood on one leg, and here's what he said. What is hateful to yourself, do to no other, that is the whole law, and the rest is commentary, go and learn. So it had been around in the negative form, but Jesus was the first to state this positively. Active, not passive, not passively, okay, I'm not going to do anything I wouldn't want anybody to do to me, but no, active, actively do to others as you would have them do to you. And Jesus says, if you do that, it sums up all the Old Testament law, all the Old Testament uh, prophets. Uh, Rabbi Lord uh, Jonathan Sachs uh, sums it up. He says, the more law is inscribed on our hearts, the less it needs to be policed in the streets. Now, we come to the next section of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says it is just so important what path we choose. I've told you before the story of my most embarrassing moment in my life. I was a senior at Wheaton College and uh, ran on the track and in, in the spring, um, in, in the winter, indoor track winter, spring track in the spring, and, uh, and then ran fall around cross country, which is a five-mile course. And it was my senior year, it was on my home course, I have a horrible sense of direction. And you, but, but even if you have a bad sense of direction, you should know your home course by your senior year. Now, even though I had a terrible sense of direction, it didn't matter that much because the number one guy on our team, I was the number two guy on our team, but the number one guy was a guy named Dan Henderson, who was perhaps one of the greatest small college runners in NCAA history. And he would always be in, in first place, so it didn't matter if I knew the directions. Dan Henderson was always in first place. Well, we're having a, a cross-country meet, five miles, on my home course, my senior year. But Dan Henderson was so far ahead. He, he, he was so far ahead, he was beyond the curvature of the earth. You just couldn't see him anymore. And I was leading about you know, 20 or 30 runners behind me. It was a dual meet with Bradley University uh, from Southern Illinois against Wheaton College. And so I've got about 20 or 30 runners behind me, and I come to a fork in, in the road. It, 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 the path went one way to the left and one way to the right. And I didn't know which way to go. And so I said, you know, I'm going to turn right. I'm 50% chance that I'm going to get this right. So I turned right. The instant I turned right, I realized I should have gone left. 
And so I said, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna do a little circle in this field and then go the other direction and nobody will ever know the difference. So I take everybody out into this field. It turned out to be a swamp. And all of a sudden, all the runners are wading in water up to their waist, um, some of them cussing up a storm. Not the Wheaton runners, but the Bradley runners were, were, were cussing up a storm. They had to cancel the entire meet. It was headlines on the sports page. The next day, Wheaton runner leads everyone astray on his home course, got lost, led everybody in the wrong direction, and the meet had to be canceled. And it was just such an embarrassing moment. And so uh, it's important to pick the right path. It's important to go in the right direction. And that's what Jesus is going to tell us now with the remainder of our time. Number five, choose to live a radical life. Choose the right path, not the wrong path. Choose to live a radical life. Even if it's challenging, even if it's difficult, choose that path that Jesus tells us to choose. Matthew 7, verse 13. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. So there are several questions Jesus is going to ask us here about this path, or he's going to answer for us about this path. Is it going to be easy? And he says one path is easy because it's broad, and the other path is hard because it's narrow. Now, the Greek word for broad here means broad, spacious, um, um, roomy. Um, Nikki Gumbel writes about that, um, about that broad path. Uh, There are no boundaries, and you can do what you like. You don't have to give up anything. Permissiveness is the order of the day. You can live a life of ease without having to keep to the standards Jesus has just set out in the Sermon on the Mount. You can be proud, dishonest, and angry. You can hate your enemy, have sex with whoever you like, and be full of lust. You need not forgive, and you need never pray or give. You can abuse your body with drugs and alcohol. You can hold on to all your money and you can be ambitious for yourself. If someone does you wrong, you can retaliate as much as you like and criticize others to your heart's content. That's that's the broad route. It's it's easy. It's broad. It's spacious. it's, It's what comes naturally. Now, the Greek word for narrow means restricted, confined, or compressed. And so Nikki Gumbel continues about that narrow road. This is the difficult road, and there are boundaries. Humility is the order of the day. It is a road where there is no unrighteous anger allowed, no sex outside of marriage, no retaliation, and no hatred. You have to give, to pray, to exercise self-control, and to seek first the kingdom of God. You have to say no to drugs and drunkenness. It is a road of purity, integrity, honesty, and forgiveness. It is a road where we are required to do to others what you would have them do to you. Life is much more difficult, especially as you can expect, that people will falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of Jesus. And so that's the difference between the broad and the the narrow road. And so that leads us to the sixth thing that Jesus tells us here. 
He says to take the long view. You say, well, why would I pick the narrow road over the broad road? The broad road's so much easier. It, it comes naturally. Why, why do the narrow road rather than the broad road? Well, because we've got to take the long view, the long-term view, rather than the short view. Curtis Martin writes, never let a short-term desire get in the way of a long-term goal. Never let a short-term desire get in the way of a long-term goal. So the next question Jesus is going to answer is where do these two roads lead? Well, one leads to destruction and the other leads uh, to life. Nicky Gumbel writes, Jesus never threatened people, but he did warn them. And there's a big difference between a threat and a warning. We threaten people we don't like. We warn people that we love. And Jesus loves us. And so here he, he warns us. He warns us about destruction. Uh, destruction, um, the word that Jesus often uses to describe destruction is Gehenna. Gehenna was a rubbish heap in the valley of Hinnom uh, outside of Jerusalem. And it's where the fire uh, burned ceaselessly and the worm steadily consumed the rotting rubbish. That's, that's the word he used to describe dis destruction. And, and this was not an angry threat by Jesus, but it was rather a loving warning. And so he says, but the other road, one road, the broad road leads to destruction. That's why even though it's easier, you don't want to go down that road. But he says the other road leads to life. Now, in the original Greek, there are two words for life. One means earthly, biological life. Jesus doesn't use that word here in the Sermon on the Mount. The one that Jesus uses here means life in the physical sense. So it does mean this life, but also in addition to that, the supernatural life belonging to God and Christ, which believers will receive in the future, but which they also enjoy here and now. It's eternal life that begins now. That's where the narrow road leads. Uh, John 17, verse 3. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Now, it's easy to be jealous of people on the, on the broad road. I know I have been. It just, their life seems so easy. And it just, it just seems, you know, so, so much easier than the road we're on. And so it's easy to be jealous of people on the broad road. There was a guy in the, in the Old Testament, uh, lived about 3,000 years ago, around 1,000 B.C., by the name of Asaph. And he wrote Psalm 73... And he describes the struggle of being on the narrow road, but being jealous of people that are on the broad road. Um, starting in verse 1. Let's read the whole psalm. It's just so, so identifies the feelings we have so many times. Asaph said, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I nearly lost my foothold. For I envy the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from common burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have 
no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like on that broad road. Always free of care, they go on amassing wealth surely in vain. Okay, Asaph is on the narrow road. He's jealous of people on the broad road. He says, surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply until I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Okay, on the narrow road, jealous of those on the broad road, but then he looks at the long term, where that's going to end up for eternity, not short term, but long term. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by tears? They're like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. Um, it reminds me of just an uh, illustration that was so helpful to me. Um, imagine that you're going to take a flight this afternoon from Los Angeles to New York City. And I hand you a parachute to wear. And I tell you, hey, if you wear this parachute, you're going to have a more comfortable um, trip. It's going to be more enjoyable. It's going to be more fun. Wear this parachute. Okay. So you strap it on. But as you fly, it doesn't make you more comfortable. It hurts your back and you're hot and sweaty. And the worst part is the other passengers on the flight, they're kind of looking and giggling at you for wearing this parachute. What's going to happen? Eventually, you're just going to say, forget that. Glenn sold me a false bill of goods and I'm going to take it off. Uh, but what if instead, when I handed you the parachute, I said this, look, this parachute is going to be hard. It's going to make your life uncomfortable. It's going to make your trip uncomfortable sometimes. It's going to be difficult. Other people may mock you, make fun of you because of it. But I tell you why I want you to hold on to this parachute. Because somewhere over Kansas, halfway between Los Angeles and New York City, your plane is going to crash. And the only way you're going to survive is to step out of that plane with this parachute on. Okay, now, it doesn't matter how uncomfortable you are. It doesn't matter if other people make fun of you. You are keeping that parachute on and you are hanging on for dear life. And the same thing is true with what Jesus is talking about, the narrow road to the broad, broad road, the gospel of Jesus Christ. You hold on to it and sometimes it'll make your life more difficult. Sometimes it'll be harder. 
But you hang on to it for dear life because you know at the end of this life is eternity, either in heaven or in hell. And the only thing between you and a Christless eternity is a faith and the gospel of Jesus Christ. So you hang on to the gospel with all that you've got, even though that narrow road is difficult to walk and, and, to, and to journey on sometimes. And then number seven, lead others to take the right road. Your oikos, the Greek word for household, the eight to 15, and your sphere of influence. You, you not only walk the narrow road, but you encourage others to join you on the narrow road as well. Your assignment from God is to go to heaven through that narrow road and to take others with you, the others in the 8 to 15 that are around you at work or in your family, in your neighborhood. Your, your oikos, the Greek word for household, to go to heaven on the narrow road and to get that oikos to walk with you on that narrow road as well. And so Jesus answers the questions, who will go with me? Will it be many or will it be few? Now, this is the problem. When you're on the broad road, um, you just kind of look around and you're on the broad road and you say, well, everybody else on the road can't be wrong. I mean, if there, there's so many people walking this broad road, how can it be wrong? G.K. Chesterton said, right is right, even if nobody does it. Wrong is wrong, even if everybody is wrong about it. Okay, the narrow road is right, even if nobody else walks that narrow road. And wrong is wrong. The broad road is wrong, even if everybody is, is wrong about it. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't going to be many people in heaven. Uh, the church of Jesus Christ is just exploding around the world. I just read the other day that there are now more Christians in uh, between one and 200 million more Christians in China than there are members of the Communist Party in China. So that doesn't mean that the Church of Jesus Christ is not exploding around the world. Revelation 7, verse 9, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And then number eight, Embark on a life of adventure. That narrow road is the road of adventure. Uh, if you're Lord of the Rings fans, Hobbit fans like I am, uh, Bilbo Baggins once said, it's a dangerous business, Frodo, going out your door. You step onto the road, and if you don't keep your feet, there's no knowing where you might be swept off to. Uh, one of our media team, Kyle Hart, uh, went to New Zealand where Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit was filmed. And uh, he went to the place where they had the set of, of the Hobbit town, where, where the Hobbits lived and where Frodo and Bilbo embarked on their great adventure. And, and here he is uh, reenacting that uh, for himself. Let's watch this. I'm going on an adventure. <laughs> I'm off. I'm off on a great adventure. Helen Keller said, avoiding danger is no safer in the long run than outright exposure. Life is either a daring adventure or it is nothing. Marcus Purvis writes, adventure may hurt you, but monotony will kill you. And I tell you, when you follow Jesus, there's not a dull day that goes by. When you're truly living the Sermon on the Mount, when you're truly living the flipped life as you follow Jesus, 
There is nothing monotonous about that. It is dangerous. It is hard, but it is an adventure. And so the final question is, how do I get in? Uh, the gate is wide. Uh, one gate is wide and one gate is small. Uh, the wide gate, the broad road, you don't have to do anything to stay on it. Just keep living your life the way you're living it. But the narrow gate, it's narrow because you can't take your garbage with you. You can't take your sin with you. You have to turn your back on everything you know to be wrong to go through that narrow gate. Now, the longer you're on the broad road, the harder it is to get off of it. But you can get off anytime you want to, even at the end. But I'm telling you, the, the sooner you make the decision, the better. The longer you walk the broad road, the harder it is uh, to get off of it. Jesus answered in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And I want to give you a chance to do that right now. As we pray together, right where you are, there in your living room, or there in your computer, or listening later on in your car, it's just a matter of three words. To enter that, that narrow gate, to go on the narrow road, it's just three words to go through Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. First word is sorry. God, I'm sorry for the wrongdoing, the sin in my life. I'm sorry that I have not lived up to the golden rule to do to others as I would have them do to me. I'm sorry, but thank you. Second word is thanks. Sorry, thanks. Thanks, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross uh, to provide the way and the truth and the life so I could go through you, the narrow gate, onto the narrow road. And please, Jesus, would you lead me down that narrow road because it ends not in destruction, but it ends in eternal life. The eternal life begins now, but it continues on into eternity. I open my heart and receive you as my Lord and Savior. From this day forward, I want to follow you on that narrow road. And I pray this in Jesus' name and all of you that agree with me, wherever you are, just say along with me, amen. Together, amen. And let's say it again, amen and amen.